It is good to see you this morning. It appears uh, that vacation is in full swing now as we enter into July uh, and sort of scatter all hoping to get some kind of renewal uh, and rest and um, some sense of uh, being revived before we head into another school year that we all hope will be uh, more normal, both in terms of just the society uh, and school than this last year was. As we see from the screens, we're going to be in Micah this morning, uh, and for the, the following, the next five weeks, we'll stay in Micah. Uh, every once in a while, I joke and say, you've just got to throw an angry prophet in, because it's good for us as a church. But I do think Micah, one of the so-called minor prophets, not uh, due to message or lack of authority, but just due to the shortness, the size, the brevity of the book, um, often speaks to, to where we are. Because there is a, a nature of drifting away from God that is just part of the human condition. Uh, that we drift not only individually, but we drift as churches always away from God and have to be pulled back toward him by his good grace and mercy. And this is where we find the people of God in Micah's day. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, so they're both on the scene at the same time. Um, the, the nation of Israel had split. Um, they had been united under uh, King Saul, David, and Solomon. And then as nations tend to do, uh, when Solomon's son sort of rose to prominence and power after him, the nation ends up splitting. You get the divided kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Um, and what follows is a period of, of somewhat uh, chaos and confusion, of struggles with rising powers around them that would rise and fall a little bit in power, but were always more powerful than Israel was. And at times they were um, sort of fearful from uh, attack from the outside at the same time that they were rotting from the inside, from lack of true leadership, both at the spiritual level and at the political level. And this is where uh, we find the Word of God coming to His people in and through Micah. Now Micah is on the scene from about the, the mid-8th century B.C., to, uh, into the late 7th century B.C. Same time Isaiah, as I said, was. And he's primarily speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, but he has something to say, especially to Jerusalem in the south and Judah as well. And God is coming primarily here to judge his people for generations of unchecked sin, generations of obstinance and idolatry and infidelity to God, He's pled with them. He's warned them. He's been patient and gracious century after century after century. And now he's preparing them. And there's something gracious even in the judgment that God is through Micah, through Isaiah, through others coming to say, hey, this is what's about to happen to you. But in this judgment, God also gives hope and he gives promise. He lets them know that there will be an end to the judgment and that God will redeem and rescue his people. And Micah basically says, look, God is raising up the Assyrians to come in judgment on you. And following them will come the Babylonians, and you'll be carried off into exile. But God will not leave you there. God never leaves his people in exile. He always comes for us. And God, through Micah, says, I'm going to come for you and bring you back from exile. Bring you back from the foreign lands, back into the land that I promised. And when they come back, they're going to be a different 
kind of people. They find out some things about who God is and who they're called to be as the people of God while they're in exile that they simply had lost sight of. In a sense, they had just lost their way. They'd lost sight of who God was and who they were and who they were called to be as his people. But that was then, and this is now, right? They were there and we're here. But I submit to you that part of what we've seen, and it has become clear to those with any spiritual discernment over the past four to six years in our nation and our society, is that a great swath of the church has lost her way in our country as well. Let me go back a little bit and just kind of pull you in here and remind you some of how we got culturally to where we are right now. In 2016, in July, uh, our nation was stunned and sort of uh, ignited a bit by the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando or Philando Castile, two black men killed by white officers. Alton was killed on July 5th in Baton Rouge, and Philando was killed the very next day, July 6th, in St. Paul, Minnesota. The next day, July 7th of 2016, Micah Xavier Johnson killed five Dallas police officers. You guys remember that? At a protest there, he began to shoot toward the end, and he killed Lauren Ahrens, Michael Kroll, Michael Scott, Michael Scott, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, and Patrick Zamirapa. The shooter had said this before going to this protest, that he intended to kill as many white police officers as possible in retaliation for the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. This happens in the context of the most heated and vitriolic and divisive presidential election in modern history between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, maybe in all of American history. Now, one year prior to these deaths, on June 26 of 2015, the Supreme Court in the United States declared same-sex marriage to be legal to the shock and bewilderment of uh, a great number of men and women around our nation, not the least of whom were and should have been Christians and followers of Jesus, but also to the shock of many around the world. Because what the United States Supreme Court did was attempt to redefine an institution that had been known throughout world history as an institution between men and women. This gave rise over time, as many said it would, to the kind of sexual revolution that we're seeing right now headed by the LGBTQ lobby that is unlike anything uh, our nation has ever seen before. Elevating uh, transsexual individuals and trading the understanding of human beings as individuals made in the image of God distinctly as male and female for the progressive creation of gender binary and gender fluid categories. So that people are one thing and then the other based on how they're feeling at a given time. And I don't want to make light of legitimate, serious mental and emotional issues that people struggle with. Those are very, very real. And out of this cultural march 
across the last few years has arisen this kind of personal censorship and attack that some will just dub cancel culture that seeks to destroy anyone who will not affirm and celebrate any tenet of secular progressive religion and belief. So if you won't condone and affirm and celebrate what I believe or what I say I am or the way that I see things, the way that I say things, I will seek, and this is largely a product of social media, but I will largely seek to put so much pressure on you and those around you that you'll fall in line or you'll lose everything of value to you. Corporations and companies have fallen right in line here, showing their unbelievable cowardice. And, and in a sense, these are kind of junior high games, right? I'm going to bully you and I'm going to call you names until you do what I want, but this is where we are right now. And then COVID hits. Right? There wasn't enough going on in our culture anyway or around the world. So COVID hits. March of 2020, February of 2020. And then on May 25th in Minneapolis, Minnesota, George Floyd lost his life. Literally under the knee of a white police officer, and it seemed to, to rip open a fissure in our nation as it was such a profound and prolific visual representation of the darkest parts of our history as a nation. And then we have masks, and then we have an election that was unbelievably contentious and vitriolic. It made the one four years before look like kids play. And then more COVID, and then more masks, and then more fighting about COVID and masks and the election. But what it revealed, among other things, and why it matters in here this morning, and where it correlates with the people of God, the covenant people of God in Micah's day, is that the, the vast majority of evangelical Churches, and I don't mean that in a political term, I mean that in the best sense of the term. Churches committed to gospel-centered ministry and messages who seek to share Jesus Christ as the one in whom all men and women find the potential of redemption and the one in whom eventually God will make all things right. That the majority of evangelical churches had lost our way as well. We'd long ago traded biblical Christianity for a form of cultural Christianity. We substituted mere church activity for actual discipleship and mission. And so when year after year of intense strife and struggle and confusion came, we didn't know how to respond. And believers turned on believers. And churches turned on other churches. And churches began drinking in all kinds of Kool-Aid from across the spectrum in our culture. And it plays out several ways in the church, and I just want to mention a couple this morning, but before I do, I want us to read from Micah chapter 1. From Micah chapter 1, we'll read seven verses, and I want to tell you ahead of time what I feel like God's calling us to this morning, and it's simply this. I believe that throughout our time in Micah, as we, as we sort of introduce Micah this morning, that God is calling us into a commitment to deep discipleship and to relational empathy 
to relational empathy. What I mean by that is to have intentional, to pursue prayerfully, intentional connections and relationships with people who are not like us, who have a different background than we do, who sees the world differently than we do, who grew up differently than we do, that we might be, as we're called to be, peacemakers. Men and women who, who bring the message of the gospel, which is the message of reconciliation to the world. Let's look at Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now here, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, of Israel, and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's transgression, or what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Part of what uh, the Lord is saying here through Micah is that the transgression and the sin of the people, he places the blame for not just on the people, but directly at the leaders of the people. So he's coming with a special message that we'll see next week for the prophets and leaders of the people of God. Verse 6, therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Part of what we see here is that the, the sins of the people and the leaders of Israel and of Judah, the people of God at that time, can be summed up or summarized roughly in two categories, that of idolatry and injustice. Idolatry and injustice. But look back at verse 2. Look back at verse 2. God says through Micah, Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth, and all who live in it. Part of, part of what we see here is that God is sovereign in power and glory over all the earth. There's no spot, there's no tribe or tongue that exists that God is not sovereign in glory and power over. And he will tolerate only so much rebellion from his creation. And those of us in this room are doubly accountable to God, not only as men and women created by God, right? Who, who owes our very life and our breath and our existence to him, but as men and women called out of darkness, redeemed by the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and brought into the family of God. But God's making it clear here that He's about to speak to His people and He's preparing to bring judgment and decimation on His people at the hands of Assyria and Babylon in time. And yet He will eventually deal with Assyria and Babylon as well. He wants the whole world to know that He is sovereign in glory and power over all of His creation. Now, Part of what was going on in Micah's day is absolutely reflective and mirrored in what's going on in our day across, in our day across much of the church. I said a minute ago that I would mention how this kind of uh, losing of our way plays itself out in church. And I want to do that now. And I think it's seen primarily in two realities that often, often characterize professing Christians in the church but shouldn't and characterize the people in Micah's day as well. It is autonomy and apathy. And I'll flesh those out in just a minute. But autonomy and apathy brought into the life of the people of God. Now, when I talk about autonomy, in Micah's day this looked like just the the elevation of the self through power, affluence, and influence so that everyone was getting whatever he or she could get in that day. At the expense of the poor, at the expense of the marginalized, at the expense of those who had less than them, at the expense of those who had less power, because it was all about the embitterment of me as an individual. It's an idolatry of individuality. And how we see this fleshed out in our day is is in a self-centered view or or understanding of discipleship we live in a culture that says to us and this is what cultural christianity says too says man lean in close to god because it's really all about self-actualization you becoming the best you you can be right living your best life now but that is cultural christianity not biblical christianity which we'll talk more about in just a minute it's about what's good for me what i want Self-actualization instead of self-denial. But church, the way of the gospel is the way of self-denial. And God says that in ways that you and I don't understand, self-denial leads to life. It's part of what it means to be members in in an upside-down kingdom where things that don't seem to be true by the structures and systems of the world. Can we just agree uh, on this? One of the tenets that, that... Christians have all believed historically centers around the universality of original sin, that all of us are born fractured. We are all born with something broken inside of us that makes certain that the minute we can choose to sin, we will choose to sin and rebel. So it follows naturally that any institutions or systems, however good they may be, and some are far better than others, But any institutions or systems created by man will be inherently flawed in some ways. Will be inherently flawed in some ways. And so however we come at this from a human standpoint, it doesn't seem to make sense. That denying myself is actually the pathway to life, to greatest joy, to greatest fulfillment. But Jesus says this is true. 
The way of Christ is not the way of self-actualization that leads to a throne. It's the way of self-denial that leads to a cross. And this is what Jesus calls us to. Come, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. But he also says his yoke, his way, his teaching, his life is light and healing to a broken and tired soul. This is where we truly find our life in him. Not autonomously, but in community with others, understanding that the decisions I make affect others around me. If there's any direction that the church in the United States and our comfort and our affluence has drifted over the last 40 or 50, 60, 70 years, it has been toward this issue of viewing the gospel autonomously. What's in it for me? How do I grow individually? What do I do whether or not I'm connected to others or even at the expense of others? Paul gets at this in the book of Ephesians as he's talking to the church in Ephesus, an incredibly gifted church uh, in a remarkable city and culture. And Paul reminds them in a passage that will be very familiar to some of you and not so familiar to others, that we are so interconnected as brothers and sisters in Christ that to believe anything else is to believe completely contrary to Scripture. Look at verse 11, starting in Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I want you to, to listen to all of this communal language. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Do you hear how connected we are to one another? We rise and fall together. I'm dependent upon you in my Christian walk and growth, and you're dependent upon me. And yet we, we've made this so individual that anytime we kind of buy into the idolatry of individuality and this autonomous view of what it means to be right before God, that naturally leads us down paths of injustice as it did the people in Micah's day because we begin to see people consciously or subconsciously as simply useful to us or not useful to us in helping us get what we want. And there's a ton of pop Christian stuff out there to help affirm that view. Here's how God helps give you what you need. But again, I'll just tell you that is cultural Christianity. Let me kind of run at it like this. Cultural Christianity says God is good. But biblical Christianity says God is good for you. 
right? It's not just that he's good. It's that he's good for you. Cultural Christianity says seek God's goods. Biblical Christianity says seek God's goodness. Seek God's goodness. Cultural Christianity says seek God so that he might provide for you. But biblical Christianity says God is your provision. When you have nothing else, he is enough. He will sustain you. He will care for you. He will hold you when the bottom falls out. Cultural Christianity says seek God to get things. But biblical Christianity says seek God to get the highest thing, himself. Himself. Which kind of leads me directly to the second issue. Not only... uh, autonomy, the idolatry of individuality has has permeated the church, causing us to lose our way, but also apathy. Apathy, which, which really is about the idolatry of privilege. We can afford to be very lazy Christians because the pressure's not been up on us in a long, long time. And the idolatry of privilege and position allows us to sort of have all the little things we want to stay entertained without being serious about following Jesus. And it's so, so sad, guys, when we lose a sense of the power and the beauty and the wonder of God. We lose everything. And I think what happened over the last year or two or three is that it became very clear that somewhere along the way, most of us had had largely traded the beauty and the glory of God for the cheap substitute of politics, sports, entertainment, or maybe even church stuff, right? But church stuff that is more of our own making and comfort than the supremacy of Christ and his mission. We can have a whole lot of good things going on in the church and be failing at our primary mission to make disciples. And often, if we're not very careful, we can't even tell the difference. That's why when when we go through the pressure cooker of the last three, four, five, six years, especially the last year or two, it reveals a lot of things to us, as the exile is about to reveal a lot of things to the people of God in Micah's day. And we should pause. I read a great article this week about why the church can't simply go back but why we ought to be discerning and prayerful and careful to ask God, what have you been wanting to teach us over the last year, year and a half? How do we go forward into the hope and the promise that you have for us? How do we move ahead as the refined people of God into the future that Christ has for us? Again, I want to reach into the New Testament to give you an example of what it's like to be fully engaged in church stuff and other things, civic and religious combined, but lose a sense of the value and the beauty of God and Christ himself. This is what was going on in the church in Colossae. And as Paul writes to the Colossians, he acknowledges that they've got a whole lot of interest in a lot of things. They're spiritual people. They're hungry. They're interested politically in what's going on in Colossae and in that region. But they've lost sight of the beauty and the wonder and the awe of Christ. 
of who he is. They haven't been staring at him and dwelling with him. And so Paul, after affirming a few things, says this in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All have been created through him and for him. So whatever it is that, that we love that excites us, there's nothing wrong with loving and being excited by all kinds of good things. But what Paul is trying to say to the Colossians and to us this morning is, you've got to see through that to the glory of the one that created those good things. You've got to see through those things and through those relationships and through those desires and those passions to the glory of the one that gives them as good gifts to you. That is where our worship and adoration goes. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. It's very easy to slide into a kind of apathy about the glory and the goodness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, of being in awe and just enamored by and overwhelmed with the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God. I think one of the greatest dangers we can experience is the pull toward seeing a church grow and develop where everyone's having fun and everyone's engaged and everyone's enjoying themselves, but completely apathetic about the power and glory and beauty of God himself. But that's always the danger. And the people of God in Micah's day had long lost a sense of the God that showed himself in power at Sinai before then that showed himself in power and created the, the, the right timing and the right circumstances and brought them out of slavery in Egypt through the Exodus. The one who provided them water and food in the desert, who provided them the leadership of Moses and Joshua, who brought them into the land he promised, showing his faithfulness, his goodness, and his ability to be trusted by his people. His provision through the darkness of the judges. They'd lost sight of that. And they'd begin to, they'd begin to accumulate for themselves idols, other things in the place of primacy in their lives. And in doing so, they had drifted into injustice, taking whatever they could, because it was all about them individually. And they'd long ago lost a sense of the beauty of God. This warning should be heard by us today. There's a difference in coming to church and being part of the church and being active in the church and being absolutely in love with the Redeemer of our souls and the one who will one day make all things right. 
So God's calling us and calling some of us back to a commitment to deep discipleship. And we'll flesh more of that out through the summer. And we're going to offer some things. Starting in the fall as the Wednesday night meal comes back to life here for us on August 8th, 13th. I don't really remember. But right around there, 13th I think maybe, whatever that Wednesday around there is. We kick off Wednesday night programming for children, for students, LM Institute courses for adults that want to get in on that and have some closed groups there. We'll have some open ones for parents and families that we're reaching during that season. Spaces that will, will have a, a different primary focus than Sunday school or small groups will. And they will all strengthen and sharpen one another. But I said one other thing that I believe God is calling us to, and it is a commitment to relational empathy. Let me just say something that's obvious. We're white. You are. You're white. I'm white. Thank God you're here, AJ. A few others, right? You help us. You help us. One of, one of the things that I think became very obvious over the last four, five, six years um, is that white brothers and sisters found that uh, we had a lot more of a tendency to, to want to tell black brothers and sisters why, why they shouldn't be so upset by all this. If someone had just acted this way or that way, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Completely dismissing centuries of our history that was built at their expense and the pain that that creates generationally and the culture that that creates and the trauma that that creates. And a lot of our black brothers and sisters realized that they had a whole lot more anger and frustration in them than they realized. And that it was very, very difficult to connect with relationally and conversationally with white brothers and sisters. But if there's any place in our country where we ought to be able to have this conversation in a different way, it ought to be in the church. It ought to be in the church. But friends, we've got to learn to relate to people empathetically. Which means when someone is in the middle of tragedy and brokenness and they're angry and they're hurting and they're confused and they're fearful, you don't respond to that feeling with facts or with your understanding of facts. You sit with them in the pain. You say, I don't know what to say, but I care. And I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. You just be there and you listen and you trust to the best of our ability that the judicial system will work all that out in time as we've seen it do usually effectively and sometimes not effectively. But we understand that our black brothers and sisters have a very different historical experience with the so-called justice system in the United States and especially in the South. And we've got to learn to stop being so defensive, right? We've got to be more formed by the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ than our own idols that push us toward anger and division. We've got to be committed to deep discipleship and to relational empathy in ways that show ourselves to be sons and daughters of God 
agents of healing and reconciliation and peacemaking on earth. Because I'll tell you, this is a big issue. We know it. We just kind of don't know how to handle it. But we ought to. We ought to. Because we're the people of God. And the gospel is the, is the one thing that destroys all this tribalism and craziness. It's the one thing that says God has made all men and women, all tribes and tongues, all ethnicities and all races in His image. In His image. And in the church, those walls start coming down. Now, I don't feel bad about being white. I'm glad I'm white. I hope if I were black or if I were Hispanic or Asian or some other ethnicity or race, I'd be glad to be that. This is not white guilt. This is the gospel. We've got to learn to be empathetic. If we're going to be agents of change and transformation, if we're going to represent God and his gospel to people in the world, as men and women together, black and white, because right, we're all in this together. One country, one church within one country. We're here. We're here. Let's learn to love and listen to one another. We're going to be looking and, and specifically planting down a stake and saying we're going to move in that direction as a church because that is where God's heart is. One of the illnesses of the people of God in Micah's time we'll see over the next few weeks was this ethnocentric nationalism that led to their destruction, that led to God's coming in specific judgment for that where they just saw themselves as the frozen chosen, the people of privilege over and against everyone else, right? And they thought they were better. And God said, don't you dare think you can escape the ethical demands I have for my people because I have entered into covenant relationship with you. All of the prophets come with a clarion call to destroy our idols and to pursue justice rather than direct or indirect permissive injustice. This is where we are. And everybody's scared and fragile in this thing, right? I've got friends who are white police officers, and what's amazing is I'll hear them say the same thing that I'll hear black friends say, that they're afraid. That they're afraid that something they say may be misrepresented, that when they go out they're going to be killed simply for being a white police officer and I'm like man this is all over the place and the one place where we ought to be able to bring healing and facilitate relationships and see the beauty of God be lifted up in the church we've largely failed at but we don't have to keep moving in that direction so I believe as I believe I'm standing here this morning that this is what God's calling us to is this commitment to deep discipleship not church games and to relational empathy, whatever the situation is, to learn to sit with people where they are and just simply say, I feel with you and for you. I love you. When you hurt, I hurt. That's what New Testament biblical Christianity looks like instead of trying to explain why we're right. Rightness rarely trumps relationship. And being right at the cost of fracturing relationships is almost always outside of God's will. One of, the, um, one of the podcasts I listen to regularly is by a guy named Trey uh, Gowdy. Trey Gowdy is a South Carolina boy. He was a prosecuting attorney, a district attorney 
in South Carolina, went on to be uh, uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, I, like, I like to listen to Trey. Trey's a committed follower of Jesus, so much so that his identity doesn't come from being a prosecutor or having been uh, a congressman, but in Christ Jesus. He has a great way to talk calmly about things. And I was listening this last week to a podcast that he did talking about pain and possibility, pain and progress. That as a nation, this has been our story, both pain and progress. We've come a long, 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 long way from where we started. And in there, he talks about this this ability and this desire to make friends with people who are different from us. And this is hard, isn't it? This is hard. I would just ask you, how many uh, of your friends, people that you've eaten in their home and they've eaten in your home, would you say are are persons of, of different a different color, persons of a different, very different cultural background. We have to pray for this and, and work at this. And then we have to be gracious for this. But Trey talked about sitting at Washington National Reagan Airport several years back, waiting to catch a flight back home to South Carolina. And a man that he deeply admired and respected and had come to know a bit, Jim Clyburn, was sitting next to him. Jim also from South Carolina. Trey Gowdy had served about a year or two in Congress. Jim had served over 30. So he had a lot of wisdom to dispense. Um, Trey was a Republican. Jim, a Democrat. As you can imagine, very, very, very different backgrounds. Both loved their home states, though, and worked together for the good of the people that they loved. Sitting there killing time, Trey said he looked at Jim, and he's, uh, or, or Jim looked at Trey and said, Trey, where, where did you meet your wife. Where did you guys meet? And he said, we, uh, we met at church. We met at church. He said, where did, you, uh, where did you meet Miss Emily? Mr. Clyburn, where did you guys meet? He said, we met in jail, son. <laughs> we met in jail. And Trey said, if you know Jim Clyburn, you'd have been as stunned as I was. Uh, stunned. I knew that whatever he was in jail for, it wasn't for breaking a legitimate law. He said, yeah, in 1960, he happened to be sitting in a restaurant at a counter where his kind weren't allowed. But he sat there nonetheless, found himself in jail. And young Miss Emily at that time, just a young black woman, came and brought him a burger in jail. They split the burger and each ate half and sat there and started talking. And he said, I decided I liked that burger. And, uh, and I wasn't opposed to her bringing me another burger. Which she did. They fell in love and were married. Trey Gowdy has since become really, really good friends with Tim Scott. Tim Scott, another elected official from South Carolina. You'll notice that Trey and Tim don't look a lot like one another. Both Republicans, you may love that, you may hate that, whatever, I don't care. That's not my point this morning. But uh, as Trey and Tim got to know one another, both from South Carolina, they realized, boy, boy, they came from the same state, but they did not have the same upbringings. Very, very different circumstances and situations. And yet this friendship emerged that has kind of amazed most in the media. They don't know what to do with these two guys. Um, but I'll tell you, they, they wrote a book that is, um, is quite good, and I would recommend it to all of you as a good read during this time of strife and chaos and and racial division. It's called Unified, and if you can't read the little 
writing at the bottom, it says, how our unlikely friendship gives us hope for a divided country. Church, the way that we move forward in these times and the way that we show ourselves to be the people of God is by humbly submitting ourselves to deep discipleship, to staring back at God for all that He is and surrendering everything else that has its hold on us and pursuing with other brothers and sisters in Christ the way of Christ to the glory of God and the good of those around us and making an intentional commitment to relational empathy, to being friends with people who are different from us. It matters. It matters. We can't walk in other people's shoes, but we can try to and we can think about it. And I can tell you, we have different experiences as an interracial family with biracial little boys and it's, it's unique and it's interesting. But let me tell you, when I think about this congregation four or five years from now, in both or all three of the services that we'll be running, I hope to see far more people of color and different backgrounds, all of us serving together, loving one another, sitting in the tension of it, right? And listening and sharing stories and why do you think this way and why do you think that way and how does this come across and, and reaching out and being the body of Christ to the glory of the one who has redeemed us, the one who defines us, the one in whose church we sit this morning, and being finally a light of truth to a community around us that remains so divided and so volatile. Let's stand and pray.